Welcome to our final episode of season one of The Syndicate. Before we take a pause to begin work on season two, we'd like to thank everyone who helped us with the production of season one. From Don Devereaux, Jana Bombersbach, and Richard Ruelis, to our amazing interns at the Cronkite School of Journalism, Bree Pacelli and Hogan Armstrong. They did a great job. Thank you. This was truly a team effort. And one person really put his heart and soul into the investigation of this story in the interviews. And that is my friend, John Agonopoulos, my partner. Thank you, Johnny, AKA the Greek. You did an incredible job here. We'd also like to thank all of you, our listeners, for taking this journey with us. Keep an eye on the Syndicate feed for more information on season two. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to leave us a five-star rating. Those things matter. Without further ado, here's part two of our conversation with the illustrious Don Devereaux. Thanks for listening again. So let's go. I'd like us to start focusing in on some of the players in this whole story from those who were wrongfully accused to the Brad Funks and Neil Roberts and those people in this story. So well, want to start with Max Dunlap? Maybe yeah, start. let's start. Yeah, I'll tell you what, let's start with Max Dunlap. Tell me a little bit about who Max was, how he finds himself in this jackpot and the things that uh, obviously you talked about them a bit, but the exculpatory evidence that, that convinces you uh, first and foremost of his okay. Well, Max, Max went to North, North High School in Phoenix. His classmates included Brad Funk and Neil Roberts. Yes. Right? He knew these guys from high school. Max and Neil remained close. Uh, Max did not remain close with Brad, but Brad and Neil remained close. Uh, so all these guys were bouncing around each other a lot. Max made a living as a, uh, a guy who prepared land for construction projects. Uh, the, the bulldozing and the getting the, the yeah. terrain the way the people wanted it, they were going to put something on the property. And he was a land worker and he was making a pretty good living and he had someplace along the way met Kemper Miley and become kind of a protege of Kemper's. Kemper liked him and, and Max liked Kemper and <laughs> Kemper often loaned Max money to front, you know, get paid back later for projects he was working on. And, and there was a close, almost father-son relationship between these two guys. Kemper was considerably older, but these guys liked each other. Max was not the brightest guy I've ever met, mm -hmm. but he was a typical Phoenix uh, guy working on handshakes and personal relationships, being charming, being personable, and being pretty straightforward. You could run, you know, handshake was all you needed to do a deal with him. Yeah. And uh, a pretty, pretty kind of a decent guy in his own way. Uh, cut corners, certainly, like a lot of Phoenix businessmen did at the time. Uh, had a wife and, I think, seven kids. Yes. And uh, lived up on Bethany Home and, and a big house with a double lot and a couple of dogs and horses and all kinds of stuff. And not a very complicated guy. And did spend a lot of time on over on the river, over in the Havasu area, where he had projects he was working on. But he was a typical Phoenix businessman of his time and, and uh, spent a lot of time with Neil, there was a guy named Don Aldrich, who was a friend of Max's, running for Congress in 76. And uh, Aldrich was from Havasu. And they were using Neil's office, with or without Neil's enthusiasm, as kind of a Phoenix campaign headquarters. Max imposed a lot on Neil. Liked to hang out, liked to get free legal advice, you know, use his office for other stuff. And, and I think at times Neil probably resented that, but he tried to find ways to make it useful. And uh, this is before Bowles was killed. And, and Max made use of what was going on down there. Uh, John Adamson, one of the, Neil had, had a, a house, kind of a condo he had, and then a pool and then an office that were kind of a complex on Virginia, on the, on the west side of, of Central Avenue, around Virginia and Third Street. Yeah. And uh, it was a collection point for pool parties and all kinds of stuff. And, and Neil was into coke and drugs and all that kind of good stuff at the time. And uh, John Adamson was hanging out a lot with Neil. And uh, Neil let John use one room in the complex around his office, 
one of the empty law offices as kind of a uh, kind of a store where John could fence stolen goods. And Max wardrobed Don Aldrich for his congressional campaign out of stolen suits. Oh, really? <laughs> from from that store, they bought postage stamps for ten cents on the dollar at that store for mailings. Uh, I mean, Max was the kind of guy that would like a lot of people, like everybody yeah. in town at that time. If you got a place you can buy it, buy a hot TV set. Oh God, <laughs> I, I, I can't tell you how many my dad bought that were, yeah, exactly, 20 cents on the dollar. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was just, you know, why, why would you spend yes. full price when you can get it over there yes. for something less than that? So it was not, what Max was doing was just what everybody kind of yes. did, but he did yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, and, but he hung out with, with Neil and, and John. Max was available as, yeah. a, as a patsy, yeah. but he was also a way of getting at Kemper. And uh, what had happened and had mis been misinterpreted by the Funks, uh, when, when it looked like Emprise and the Funks were going to get booted from Arizona, Kemper mildly had the liquor contract mm -hmm. at the tracks. It was a big part of a big deal to him. He didn't want to lose it. And so in the off chance, of, I mean, the, the real chance that they were going to get thrown out, Kemper put an investment group together fronted by a guy named Fred Porter. Fred Porter Jr., right. right. Uh, to uh, offer themselves up as an alternative to the Funks and Emprise, at least temporarily, to keep the tracks afloat if they got thrown out until a permanent solution could be found. It was obvious to everybody that Porter didn't have a pot to piss in, so obviously somebody was fronting the money for, for Porter. And Porter later acknowledged in, a, in an interview with the Arizona Republic before Bulls was killed that that man was Kemper Marley. And that's in the front page of the Arizona Republic a month or so before Don was killed. Uh, the Funks knew that, and the Funks misinterpreted it. The Funks thought that Kemper was among the people trying to get them thrown out so he could get control of the tracks. He was making a play. And, 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 and in point of fact, Kemper had no interest in the tracks. He had an interest in maintaining his liquor contract. But the Funks put him at the top of their enemies list. And so one of the ways to get to Kemper was Max, his protege. Max did it for Kemper. So the, the whole Max Dunlap, Kemper Molly thing was kind of a twofer. Max was a pain in the ass, and Kemper was a pain in the ass. Yeah. And if we got to blame somebody, let's blame them. Let's blame these guys who <clears throat> they think are making their lives miserable. But I don't think there was a lot of forethought here. I yeah. think I think when the when, I think when when Adamson's name came up, which I don't think they hoped would happen, um, I think they basically threw this plot together rather hastily. They might have even thought about it a little bit, but I think it was a uh, a last minute put together, what do we do now kind yeah. of a thing. And this is what was suggested to them as a workable scenario. Uh, blame Max and may maybe Max did it for Kemper. Uh, Mac uh, Don Bowles had written an article about Kemper in February <clears throat> that, uh, for which he ultimately resigned from the Racing Commission. But he had reasons to resign from the Racing Commission apart from that. He, he was on the Racing Commission because Castro asked him to be. <laughs> but in point of fact, that wasn't that big a deal to Kemper. And, if Kemper was positioning himself to take control of the dog tracks, he couldn't be on the racing commission. So he needed to get off the racing commission in case this happened. And at that point, he did not know Bruce was going to take a dive and let Emprise stay on it. So the whole thing was, you know. Everything appeared to be headed in a direction where this monopoly was going to be broken up. Exactly. Yeah. And Kemper would thought he might have to do it. And yeah. this is what he would have to do to get there. And Kemper was worth around $400 million in 1976 money. Yeah. Wealthy man. You know, he was rich enough that, you know, this none of, the, none of this was a big, making money was what he was all about. Yeah. If he had wanted Bowles killed for some damn reason, he could have bought the paper and fired him. <laughs> or he could have hired the best hitman in the world. And like right. Jimmy Hoffa, we never would have found Don Bowles again. He never would have reached out to a bunch of North Central Avenue drunks to, yeah. to carry it out. <clears throat> and he wasn't a back shooter. Now, Kemper was a nasty son of a bitch. I hated him. Yeah. I knew him, but he was the kind of guy who might break a bottle over your head in a bar fight, but he wouldn't shoot you in the back. There was nothing about Kemper that said, you know, this was him. And, and Bowles was not particularly focused on Kemper, contrary to rumors in the, investigating the liquor industry. Yeah. He wasn't a major target. And when Adamson said that, that uh, there were three victims and it was, it was going to be... Uh, Bowles and, and, and Babbitt. Babbitt, right. And, and then this this crazy guy. The king, king, PR guy for King, king, king Alphonse. King, Al, king Alphonse, right, Who thought he was right. the king of Spain, <laughs> who used to stand at the capital with these placards quoting biblical scriptures and stuff. No kidding. He was a nutcase. He was the kind of guy you have with a butterfly net. You don't put out a murder contract. At this, no at this, kidding. And he thought he was the king of Spain. He thought he was King Alphonse. He and was, he, was he at some point working for Kemper Marley? He had worked for Kemper at some point and then 
I think, been terminated with cause. When he started, he was a he was a head he was a head yeah. case, and yeah. and and he would quote biblical scriptures, and he yeah. was down the temper with the devil incarnate, and and he literally thought he was an heir to the throne of Spain. He thought he was King Alphonse the Seventh or something. Do you think Babbitt was added to that? He said to flatter Babbitt. Yeah, Babbitt was never a target, and nor was King Alphonse Almost ever. Almost to keep Babbitt's nose clean. From well, they made Babbitt feel like he was, yeah. you know, he was really had equity. But you know, one of the things about reversible error is this thing. Uh, in, in, in a murder case, Babbitt was the chief prosecutor in the Bulls case. Schaefer did it, but Babbitt was. You can't be a target of a murder plot and the chief prosecutor in the same plot. That's, yeah, that that's, make sense. that's law 101. But yeah. my point is that was reversible error from the from the beginning. Yeah. From the beginning, you can't be the vic you can't be the target of a conspiracy and prosecute it. You know, you just can't do that. So and from the beginning, this is a case that could be taken. And this was a, and they, they they could have picked that as the reason they they didn't. But there were any number. I'm telling you, there were any number of glaring things about yeah. this that never should have been allowed to happen. Right. And, and this was the most obvious. Yeah. You can't be the target of a conspiracy and prosecute the conspirators. You've got a conflict of interest at that point, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, that's basic law, and, and, and they did anyway. And that makes me wonder, you know, what the hell were they thinking when, when they did that? There are so many things that jump out from those trials. Yeah, that, yeah. That so make, the, the, that, that was just, yeah, was just, it was just horse puckies that, yeah. that, <laughs> that King, especially when, when he threw in King Alphonse, it gets totally ludicrous. You got the cackle here, the guy with a placard every day, where, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only yeah. son. I mean, uh, biblical citations and all this stuff. And this was a, a lunatic time, yeah. you know, and, and a murder contract. Well, Porter had been wiretapped by, the same people that wiretap Bowles and everybody yeah. else. When, when Porter would talk to Don Bowles, he would get threatening phone calls from Buffalo, you know, saying, we understand you're talking to Bowles, bad things are going to happen to you. So, you know, Porter was being wiretapped right at the time Bowles was killed. They were keeping track of who Bowles was talking to. And Porter was one of Bowles' major sources on Emprise. And uh, he was also an alcoholic, but he was a major source of Don's at the time. And when, when Bowles was killed, Porter was beaten up. He was attacked two days later with either a baseball bat or a pipe and left unconscious on the street near his house. And uh, when Adamson talked to Mark Cook later about what was happening, he links the assault on Porter with the Bulls killing. They killed they killed Bulls and they beat Porter up. And they came to shut me up, yeah. Yeah, they shut him up, they beat him up. And, and uh, the Phoenix Police Intelligence was concerned. Weaver and company interviewed Porter at length in the hospital. They understood the connection. They knew that Porter was attacked by the same people who killed Bowles. Uh, it was a twofer. They, they killed Bowles and they beat up the guy he was talking to. And they might have even killed him. It's lucky that Porter survived. One of the arguments that the, that the cops who didn't believe that Porter was attacked was that he fell and hit his head on the curb. Porter was drunk. But the fact is he had two groove marks in his head. He was hit twice yeah. with a bat or a pipe. You don't fall and hit your head twice on a curb. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> you might do that once, but you don't. Do, you don't get up and fall down and do it yeah. again. He was hit with a bat, and Adamson, Adamson talked about it as a bat. That it could have been a bat or a pipe. It was a round object of mm -hmm. some sort, uh, and he was hit twice. But yeah, he was attacked afterwards, and it's one of the loose ends in the Bulls case. Yeah, you know? it was an attack after after Bulls. But he was being wiretapped at the time and, and realized it because he gets threatening phone calls after he talked to Don. And Don was getting threatening phone calls. Yeah. I mean, everybody was threatened. Don was threatened on the steps of the Capitol by Brad Funk. You know, the, Wasn't the, that just before? Just before he was killed, yeah. yeah. Dunlap was the guy who had, uh, was spending a lot of time hanging around Neil and John. and, and, and The uh, Ivanhoe crew. Like uh, that yeah, drinking stuff. with yeah. him and all this kind yeah. of crap. And, and, and did not realize that he had be become... Uh, persona non grata to, yeah. to them at the same time. And he certainly had. And, and uh, when they needed to reach out, they reached out and set him up. Max had, you know, the, the notion that Max would have arranged Bull's death because of an article he, Bulls had written about Kemper in February. It might have irritated Max, but you know, I can't think of any situation in my life that I've ever looked at where somebody was killed four months later for writing a bad article right. about somebody else. That, right. And it didn't make any difference in that. As, as a motive, it never really made any sense at yes. all. But it is all there is. I, I later sat down, when I went to work for The Progress, one of the first things I did was I called uh, Lonzo McCracken, whom I had known mm -hmm. and at one time respected, and told Lonzo to meet me. I was going to work for The Progress on the Bulls case. I wanted to give him a heads up. Can we talk? And he came and met me at a Bob's Big Boy near Christown. And, mm -hmm. and he brought his, his sidekick, 
DeBusk, Robert DeBusk, uh, who wore a cowboy hat and never talked. Mm. <laughs> they, they, they were toothsome, but I never, heard, yeah. I never heard DeBusk say a word. So we had coffee or something or other at Bob's Biggie Boy. And I said, look, Lonzo, um, I know you think Max Dunlap did it. That's been your position all this time. Uh, do you know something I don't know? Because what I know doesn't make any sense. Did you have a wiretap you couldn't produce because it wasn't legal or something that really clearly indicated that this is what happened? You know, what is out there that really makes you think Max yeah. is the guy? You know what they told me? Max had a girlfriend in, in Lake Havasir named Tiffany. He was cheating on his wife. I said, good Lord, if if you can end up on death row for, che a, for, for cheating on your wife, I said, half the businessmen in Phoenix, maybe half the house more than half, would, yeah. <laughs> would, yeah. would be on death row. And, in, in, in Florence. I said, yeah. that, that was the best they could give me. And, and where I really lost interest in Lanza was actually before that. Before I went to work for the Scottsdale Progress, and I was doing farm labor organizing and refusing Marshall's invitation to write for the paper, I got visited by a kid named Michael Jodan, who had looked me up in Phoenix, knew I'd been on the Arizona Project, lived in Scottsdale, was an occasional informant for the Scottsdale Police Department, and he told me a story about the Bulls case. He told me that before Bulls was killed, He'd been sleeping with a woman named Kara Kobe, young woman, who was the daughter of Marty Kobe, who was part of the Funk organization, married to one of the Funk daughters, and a good friend of Brad's, and that her mother had left her father, but she was still living with Marty, and kind of the, the, the lady in the house who served drinks and dinner and everything else. And when, when Brad and her father were having conversations over dinner a few weeks before Bowles was killed, they were talking about Bowles being killed, upcoming. And she told that to Jodan a couple of weeks before it happened. And Jodan went to his Scottsdale police guy for whom he was a snitch, Sergeant Bob Powers, and told him there's a reporter about to be killed. And a couple of weeks later, it happens. And Powers gets a hold of him. Powers apparently has not done anything with that information, didn't know what to make of it. They said, what I want you to do now is pretend you're now telling me that for the first time. That now you're telling me after the fact that you had heard about this. And I'll report it. Jordan subsequently got crossways with the, over some money issue with the Scottsdale Police Department, and he was trying to badmouth them and Powers by saying they had foreknowledge of the crime and let it go. I later confirmed that with two other people that Powers told about it before it happened. Uh -huh. That a, that a kid had told him that Bowles was going to be killed before it happened. Two other informants of his, he told that story to. Anyway, Jodan tells me this story, and the point is it implicated the Funks. Yeah. This is Brad Funk and Marty Kobe talking about killing Bowles before it happened. So I called Lonzo. I wasn't working for the Progress yet. I said, Lonzo, there's a kid talking to me that you should talk to. He's talking about, you know, Marty Kobe and Brad Funk talking about killing bulls before it happened. And Lanza wouldn't meet with him. Lanza took the position that if I meet with him, we have to give that information up on discovery. It's exculpatory to Dunlap. This is this is after so they the, would rather get it wrong and get a conviction than uh, get it right. Uh, yeah. Lanza was protecting the case. He wasn't interested in listening to any information that could hurt the case. And for whatever reason, he might have thought it was bullshit. I have no idea, but he did not want any part of it. And I had respected Lanza to that point. At that point, I didn't know who killed bulls, but this was a tantalizing little piece of information. Yeah. And this kid had no reason to come look me up and lie to me about that. And I later learned that when uh, I, I tried talking to Kara Kobe later on, she was in San Diego at that point with her father. When I attempted to reach her, she disappeared from view. And I later learned from, um, believe it or not, Israeli military intelligence uh, a colonel in the Amman, uh, whom I got to know, <laughs> that he was the one, he'd been based in Phoenix, that he was the one that moved her to a kibbutz in Israel for a couple of years to make her unavailable for questioning in the Bulls case. Really? They hit her on a kibbutz for, for a couple of years. No kidding. Yeah. Monty Kobe and the Funks were prominent Jews and active buyers of Israeli bonds and stuff like that. And Israeli intelligence had a military intelligence operation in Phoenix. And, and this guy... Will Northrup, who was a North Carolina Israeli, uh, spoke. He was in. He was in Israeli with a, with a Southern accent, <laughs> a North Carolina boy. But he was a colonel in. He was a Jew and a colonel in the Amman. Lived in Israel. Lived in Tel Aviv, and uh, with a long pedigree. As a f and he knew Mahdi Kobe. And as a favorite of Mahdi, he arranged to hide Mahdi's daughter out in San Diego at a kibbutz because she had information in the Bulls case. So every night the information was righteous. 
Yeah. yeah. They wouldn't have bothered to hide her out in a kibbutz for a couple of years if she didn't have something, no, to, of course not. something to say. <laughs> I'm sure she went from living a plush life in, in San Diego to picking turnips on a kibbutz and you know, and oh my gosh. probably not a, probably not a happy camper no. <laughs> to be living on an agricultural kibbutz in Israel uh, for two years because her father wanted her out of the oh country. Oh my gosh! But that was a true story. But in any event, the first story I broke for the progress when I went yeah. to work for the progress, I resurrected all of that and and got a hold of Jodan and we yeah. put it in print and, and I interviewed Mahdi again and all that kind of stuff. But but um, by that point, Kara was you know, long gone. She was. She was off and running in the wind. In the wind, yeah. But uh, you know that was uh, that was Lonzo. Uh, but Max Max's biggest problem as a as a person uh, was his own naivete about the way the criminal justice system worked, and didn't bother to get a criminal attorney even after he knew he was a suspect early on uh, in the investigation. Continued to rely on civil lawyers who didn't really? know their ass about anything and he made he, he, he volunteered for polygraphs he right never, I was never, ask you about that. never yeah. should have taken and flunked them low, apparently as far as i can tell uh, because he was upset and did a lot of dumb things yeah that made himself look guilty after the the bombing the meeting adamson at the law firm well the, 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 the money the money not there. well well yeah. neil 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 sending somebody neil set him up neil sent some money over early in the morning and asked him to deliver it to the, the lawyer for john yeah. adamson uh, to Tom Foster's office, and and uh, he I mean he knew what it, he knew he knew it would involve the Bulls case because yeah. Ad, Adamson was it was this is for Adamson's defense. Neil was contributing some money and couldn't take it personally because he was under surveillance. Would Max take the money to John's lawyer? So Max did, and this was a setup that was supposed to be surveilled because John was under surveillance at the time. So the assumption was that when Max showed up with the money. The cops he'd be would, nabbed in the surveillance. Well, he'd, he'd, he'd show up in surveillance. In yeah. point of fact, the cops lost Adamson that morning, and they weren't aware of where he was. So they did not know about the money drop until until um, Max told them about it, and and they confirmed it with Adamson. But but the point is, they they, they had missed it entirely the, the setup. And if Dunlap had mentioned it, it would have just yeah yeah it was just, it would have vanished. But but uh, they 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 blew it. But. He never should have done that. Uh, I think Tom Foster himself was the guy that met Max in the driveway. It was not somebody Max knew. This is like six o'clock in the right, morning. Right, right. I believe they said it was still dark out. Max yeah. used to go. Max did his work particularly in the summertime. Early. Early, and so he was leaving very early in the morning. And ironically, a guy named Marty Fogelsong, early in the morning at the same time Max was meeting a guy in the driveway. So Marley saw the guy. I have a good physical description of the guy from, from both Marley and from Max. And the physical description match, matches Tom Foster, the lawyer that was... Was supposed to, he was supposed to be... And, and the reason he wasn't in the office that day is his secretary said he was out of town. So he may have been the guy that made... And he was a protege of Neil's. He was a guy that Neil threw a certain amount of legal work to just to keep him afloat. And Adamson, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was there waiting like he... Well, he was, was waiting for Max to show up in the yeah, money. Yeah, got it. Okay. And assuming there'd be police surveillance there to... Max had a hard time ultimately finding a criminal attorney because one of the things that Emprise and the Funks had done cleverly, like most people, is they had farmed out almost all their legal work to every major law firm in town. There was almost nowhere you could go that wouldn't have a conflict of interest if Max was going to pursue the dog tracks as a defense. And so Max had a hard time finding a qualified criminal defense attorney. And finally, John Savoy, who was his civil attorney, whom I really have questions about, because John Savoy's partner was Cheryl Hendricks, Bob Balzano's girlfriend. John Savoy sent Max with one of his partners to Las Vegas to figure out how they could get an out-of-town lawyer to defend Max for the first trial. And the partner took Max to Morris Schenker, who was a mobbed-up guy running the Dunes Casino. And Morris hooked him up with Paul Smith in Boston, who was an attorney for the Patriarca family, which was also hooked up with Emprise in New England. And so Max hired Paul Smith as his first trial attorney. So Max is defended by an attorney for the mob in Emprise, Paul Smith was a Patriarcha family attorney from Boston. And Max's civil attorney arranged that through Morris Schenker. And I can't figure out how the hell they let that happen. If John Savoy was Max's civil attorney and friend, and how, he's farming his job out to somebody. How, how would you end up arranging for Max to have you know, Paul Smith, a Patriarcha family lawyer from Boston, representing yeah. him? And what happened when Paul Smith came to town, he was a moderately competent attorney. Uh, he would be sober in the morning and have like a four martini lunch 
and be blotto in the afternoon, unable to do cross or direct or anything. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was a completely screwed up situation. And, 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 you know, fairly competent in the morning, so good in the afternoon. Yeah. And, and I'm not even sure how hard he worked because he was representing the guys back in Boston, he represented where the guys actually involved involved killing them yeah. Both. Yeah. the mob and the pin and, and, and the dog tracks yeah so it was you know I, I can't figure out how that happened and then when you have the fact that Paul that John Savoy his civil attorney partner is Cheryl Hendricks who is Bob Balzano's girlfriend um, like you said earlier about coincidences I mean you know and when I pointed out to, to John later you know that your your partner and your secretary are, are, are sleeping with everybody his only complaint was that they weren't sleeping with him, you know, I never got into that, you know. I, I have suspicions that, that John Savoy was not Max's best friend. Max went to his grave thinking he was. I'm not so sure uh, that it may, it may have been one more betrayal. But Max got set up at every conceivable, every conceivable place. Way. And, and part of it was his own fault. Whenever Max came to a fork in the road, he almost always chose the wrong one. Really? Uh, I had developed so much information that was exculpatory to Max uh, in the course of working for The Progress that... Everybody in town assumed that Max would never be charged again. But when Max was charged again, when George Weiss steered it back in that direction for the AG's office, Max was represented by Jordan Green. And Jordan Green, using my stuff and stuff he had developed of his own, rather easily would have got Max acquitted. Jordan was the guy that did the dynamite experiment with the vehicle. the Dotson? Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, there was just no way that John Adamson was going to survive cross-examination, uh, given what we now knew about all of this stuff, where the dynamite came from and the bomb and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And uh, that's why Jim Robeson ultimately was easily acquitted in this yeah. because Henzi was a competent lawyer. But partway through the process, because Jordan was going to cost Max a lot of money, probably ultimately his house. Uh, Max decided to do it on the cheap, and he discharged Jordan and went back to Murray Miller, who was a lousy trial lawyer. And Max was just convinced again that because he wasn't guilty, that he wouldn't be found guilty. Right. You know? That the, the criminal justice system would just not let that happen. Yeah. And Murray Miller, for whatever reason, did not do anything to impeach Adamson's testimony. None of the stuff that I developed that would have used to impeach was used. None of the stuff that Jordan had developed was used. Murray spent his entire time talking about the cops having destroyed files like the H, like, like, like the M-Price file, the yeah. 51 file, which was totally beside the point. And he let Adamson's testimony survive unchallenged, despite that there were thousands of ways to challenge it. And even then, Max the only was, thing that could really. And even then, Max almost got off. There, there was a hung jury twice. Uh huh. In in the second trial, the jury enough of the jury was still uncomfortable with all of this, and it took two dynamite instructions to to get it done. And even that was illegal. One of the members of the era Supreme Supreme Court, Arizona Supreme Court, helped write the dynamite instruction that Judge Hall used to give the jury. Really. And that's not a kosher because that case might end up at the Supreme Court. And you can't have a, a Supreme Court justice participating in the conviction of somebody in a case that may end up before no the kidding. Supreme before the Supreme Court. And that happened. Judge Martone helped Judge Hall write the dynamite instruction. I mean, the dynamite instruction essentially is that the state has invested a lot of time and energy in this case, and they're not going to release you early. You're going to have to work a while yeah. uh, to make sure that this investment is protected. So I'm not discharging you now. It might be a long time. So you know, reach a verdict. He had to do that twice. And uh, and Martone helped him write the instruction, and and, uh, and that should never have happened. Yeah. If and I warned Max when he told me he was changing lawyers. I said, you know, don't do it. I wasn't the only one. I said, you've got a Jordan Green will get you off. This will be over. Uh, and your reputation is more important than your goddamn house. You know, you can go back to work if you're a free man. And Barbara's got seven kids to go live with in her old age. Right. You know, you sound like you're going to be on the streets. Protect your protect your reputation, Max. That's the only thing worth protecting. Don't end up a convicted murderer. And um, no, he can, you know, he's not going to get, Murray, Murray will get him off. And uh, off he went. Uh, and I knew in my heart of hearts he was screwed. But I didn't know that Murray would use nothing. And Murray told me later that, you know, he was determined he was not going to use anything that anybody else developed. This was his trial. He was only going to use what he had. It was going to be his case. He wasn't going to owe anything to anybody else. There's a and, lot of ego and hubris in this yeah, story. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of vanity, a lot yeah. of silly. 
So I don't know whether Murray took a dive or or uh, or just was incompetent. Yeah. Take your pick. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> there are reasons to suspect. One of them has to do with that. I think I told you a story about Murray having a witness. Do you want me to tell you that story? Yeah, please. I don't remember this. When, when Max was acquitted, when, when, when the conviction was overturned in 80, I went to see Murray to congratulate him because he'd helped develop some of the information that encouraged that to happen. The, the way that the prosecution had hid a lot of exculpatory evidence in the first trial, uh, there, is a, there is a method by which if, if the prosecutor can't decide whether something is exculpatory or not, he can give it to the judge to decide. So what they did is they took the prosecution in the first trial took boxes and boxes and boxes of police reports, some of them exculpatory, some of them not, and asked the judge to decide. The judge never even got around to looking through a lot of that stuff. It would have taken like a year. So the first trial happened without the judge even going through a lot of that stuff. And and the prosecution knew that would happen. They so overloaded the judge with having to make up his mind about what was exculpatory, that he never had a chance to really do that. So a lot of the stuff that I later found was not so much hidden by the prosecution, but buried in boxes given to the judge that the judge never had a chance to look at. And what happened was after the trial, all that stuff became available. And so we all of a sudden had access to the stuff that the judge had never gotten around to. And we found vast amounts of exculpatory evidence that effectively had been hidden by the prosecution by giving it to the judge. And they might have even had to deal with the judge not to look. I mean, I have no idea what happened. Uh, but the fact is, it, just, it never got examined. So there were boxes and boxes of crap that just sat there. And it included lots of stuff that would have helped Max get acquitted. That stuff began to surface in the second trial, before the second trial. And, and after Max was acquit was turned, turned around in 80, I, I went to see Murray to say, you know, how you doing? And Murray was elated. He had just received a phone call from somebody he didn't identify. And that person had described himself as an FBI informant in Phoenix. I was, that was on my list, yes. And, and uh, he had been in the middle of the people that killed Bowles, knew who had done it. And if Max was ever tried again, he would be obliged and happy to become available as a defense witness because he knew what had happened uh, from his exposure to the guys that really were involved. Murray was elated about that. Now, he, had, he had an ace up his sleeve if it ever came around again. And so when Max was, was, when Murray took over the case again for the 93 trial, I, I asked him, I said, what are you going to do about the guy that called you back in 1980? You've got this witness out there who yeah. knows what happened. And Murray said, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no recollection of that. And he either was, had a very bad memory or he deliberately was bullshitting me. Yeah. And I don't know which. I don't know which. I would have thought he would remember. I wrote about that on my website somewhere. That's where I saw it the first time, okay. But, but uh, it troubled me because Murray was so pleased by that information when it first came around. And then, you know, like, what are you talking about? I don't think he would, any more than Babbitt would forget gambling debts. Right, it doesn't make sense. I don't think Murray would forget that he had a witness available to exonerate Dunlap. That said he was part of the real group. That yeah, yeah. yeah. And it may or may not have been a guy named John Parsons. I'm not sure. Um, there was at least one FBI informant in the group there might have been two. Parsons was a, a bartender and a bar owner in town at that time who owned the, the, the phone booth, which is a bar on, off, on, on Clarendon, off Central, yeah. where a lot of these guys hung out. Parsons was a Vietnam vet with uh, facial injury from, from the war. He had had a nose burned off by something incendiary, uh -huh. had a flap of skin that had been left behind, and was known as John Donos Parsons oh my <laughs> around town. Otherwise, a nice enough guy. I had a wife, and they ran the the, the phone booth. And the only scuffle I had ever in the Bulls case was at that bar. I got accosted by a guy named Jerry Morrison, mm -hmm. a bartender at the Ivanhoe who didn't like me uh, when I was trying to talk to somebody once at the phone booth at the bar. And uh, I remember Parsons and his wife laughing as this was going on. I lost a button in a bar fight. The guy grabbed <laughs> me. Anyway, Parsons turned out to have been an FBI informant in something. And the, the U.S. Attorney the U.S. Attorney General at the time, uh, in documents that I got a hold of through a uh, lawsuit, made it clear that there was one person with knowledge in the Bowles case uh, that the FBI was never to identify, who was a confidential informant to the Bureau. And I could tell from matching some reports about that 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 had to be parsed. But I'm not sure that that was the one they're referring to. There may have been another informant 
When I was investigating the, the Hashim Shahadi murder. A he drug, was the one that was burned up, right? A Black Canyon City dump, yes. shot shot five times in the back. He, he, he was killed shortly before Bowles died, but after Bowles was bombed. Bowles was still alive when Shahadi was killed. Shahadi, it turned out, was a friend of John Adamson and a drug dealer and a user, about $200 a day heroin habit. And because he was dumped in, in, in Yavapai County, it was a Yavapai Sheriff's Office case. And I went up to Prescott with a FBI agent, as a matter of fact, retired FBI agent playing tag along with me. And I and Sam Steiger was in the mayor of Prescott, former congressman, New Bulls. And Sam had arranged for the Prescott, the, the sheriff's office in Prescott to cooperate with me. So I went up there and they gave me complete access to the Shahadi file. And I made copies of some of it. And in the Shahadi file, I discovered that they had had a tip from the FBI, that the FBI had a source at Greyhound Race Park, the Funk's mm -hmm. office on Central, who witnessed an altercation between apparently somebody who appeared to be Shahadi and one of the Funks before the Shahadi murder occurred. And what it looked like to me is that Shahadi, who knew from Adamson, because Adamson was talking to everybody, that the Funks had been involved, was trying to run a shakedown on the Funks for money because he was always broke with a $200 a day heroin habit. Yeah. And I think he stupidly went and confronted one of the senior Funks. And I think David K. Funk certainly would have either been the guy or become aware. And David K. Funk, uh, even though he was not a mob guy, might as well have been. He was a no-nonsense fella. And uh, there were people in law enforcement at the time here like uh, Gordon Selby uh, for Phoenix PD and the Sheriff's Office and the uh, that worked as hitmen for, yeah, they were. You mentioned that to me, and, yes. And I think Selby was one of the kind of guys who would have worked for for, for David Kay on occasion. He certainly worked for Kemper on occasion. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had, the, it had the earmarks of somebody like that. David Kay certainly could have called somebody to get Shahadi off the street. The interesting thing about it, when I got the FBI files through a FOIA lawsuit, I had to go to court to get them. Uh, and they initially gave me 800 and some pages. I later got many more. The only other homicide cross-indexed with Bowles by the FBI was the Shahadi killing. Really? And it's cross-indexed with Bowles by the FBI. And and uh, so they evidently saw a connection. And I think it's the fact that he was seen at the Greyhound racetrack uh, shortly after Bowles was bombed in an altercation with somebody and ended up dead. I think they figured out exactly what I just told yeah. you. Uh, but that's not all spelled out. The FBI stuff is heavily expurgated. Yeah, who the hell knows what's there. But they cross-indexed it for some reason. And and uh, that's how I found about Shahadi in the first place. That's very interesting. And because he was dumped in another jurisdiction, you know, it, it doesn't show up in Maricopa County. Uh, they, they kept it completely away from the Bulls case, but the FBI picked up on it. And, but the, my point is they had a confidential, they had an informant at the Funk's office. That might be the Funk, that might be the informant, not Parsons, that the U.S. Attorney was protecting at the time. So I'm not sure who they're protecting, but they protected somebody who knew something. And and um, Parsons was friends with all these guys that killed Bowles, and the other guy was an informant at the Funk office. Either one of them could have known what happened. So we and might something have... Something had to happen with Dunlap's yeah, attorney. Well, you don't forget. Well, right? yeah, yeah, that's just very strange that he, yeah. he would be so so exhilarated about yes. having this this wild card up, up his sleeve. and, and, and then, Claim to forget, no, forget no, no recollection of yeah. what I'm talking about. And you know, the sad thing is, it might have even been in his files. When the Bulls case was over, what Murray Miller did, he turned all the discovery that he had received from the state over to the Dunlap family, the official stuff from the police department and the AG's office. He dumped all of his own records in a dumpster back of his office. Really? So all of his own notes and personal inquiries and files, he dumped and somebody picked them up and offered to sell them back uh, to Dave Fraser, who was a tax lawyer for Max Dunlap. Dave got a call asking if he wanted to buy Murray's files. I don't know what the price would have been, but Dave was offended and told the guy to go screw himself. But somebody went through Murray Miller's dumpster and acquired all of Murray Miller's records. I was in the, interested in them because they might have contained a reference to the informant that called him. Uh, and I was sorry that Dave Frazier didn't spend the money to yeah, buy them. Yeah, and Frazier's <laughs> the one that ended up picking up kind of the cause, right? To he became very, very somewhere. active in the Dunlap Defense Committee. Yeah. But he also was cheap. And, yeah. and uh, yeah, I don't know what the price was if even offered. 
But Dave took it as kind of like blackmail and he wasn't going to pay it. Yeah. And may not have even understood the importance of getting all that stuff. But any hopes I ever had of finding out who that informant was disappeared when, when all that stuff vanished. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know who had it or what they did with it. Uh, I don't, and I don't know why Murray just threw it all away, but he just dumped it. You know, just weird. Uh, that whole history is uh, makes no sense to me. There's so many things that don't make sense yeah, yeah. in this story. But uh, Max, Max just made a lot of mistakes and, yeah. and made it easy for them to set him up. Neil Roberts used to laugh later on in front of other people about how easy it was for Max to get you know, really? set, set up in this little number that Max made himself extremely easy. Made it too easy for him. Yeah, I mean, he made it easy for them to set him up. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that, that he was. You know, everybody sort of talks about it. Even Adamson talked about it. And Jimmy Robus, I mean, Jimmy Burdick talked about it. A lot of people talked about yeah. the fact that Max was, was, not, was not the guy. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with Max uh, back when I could get into the prison which I later got banished from, but I could, for a while, I interviewed Max in yeah. prison while he was there. This was after the first conviction, not the second. And uh, my first meetings with Max were in the joint. And then later on in the 13 years he was loose, I spent a fair amount of time with the guy. I wouldn't consider myself a friend of Max. I would consider myself a good acquaintance. There was lots about Max that I didn't find particularly likable. I didn't find him very bright. He wasn't all that interesting to talk to, but I never found any indication in any of my conversations, no slip of any kind that ever suggested that he had anything to do with this at all. And it seemed so completely out of character and so completely lacking a righteous motive. <clears throat> there was just no doubt in my mind after spending time with this guy that that, that just doesn't work. So I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced Max had nothing to do with it. And, and was just somebody set up to, to deal with it. Part of the problem, part of the reason that people like Neil were protected has to do with people like Goldwater. Neil Roberts was kind of like the hub on a, on a wagon wheel with a lot of spokes, different illegal things he was involved in, that each each leading to a prominent person in town. And, and had Neil gone down for anything, he posed a huge threat to a lot Those of people. Spokes. Neil did not really practice law in the conventional sense. Neil yeah. was a fix-it man. He bribed people. He organized things. He was not really a trial lawyer. Yeah. And he had a limited list of clients, and they paid him handsomely, and he kept them out of trouble. And he was a drunk, among yeah. other things. Began drinking by noon and was blitzed by evening. Neil knew he was in trouble when this whole thing happened, and Adamson revived and as a name and was getting a right KTAR reports are already naming yeah, the guy yeah, he was meeting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Neil knew he was at risk and that he might get killed. And so Neil worked with a guy named Joe Patrick who was a radio news guy in town. And they quickly wrote a manuscript uh, that apparently he stashed with an attorney who'd been a partner of his in an earlier life, uh, unidentified. I know who the guy is now. And uh, he's now dead. Uh, and he left this if anything happens to me other than a heart attack, you know, make this public. And it was apparently known to people that he had done this to protect himself. Otherwise, he might have been in trouble. What the bad guys did is they continued to surveil Neil long after this happened to see who he was meeting and talking to. And when Tom Sanford met with Neil in, in January of 77, um, you know, that may have been how they figured out what happened. Because yeah. back in 70, when, whenever Neil sold the house and property on Virginia, this might have been later than 77. I can't remember when it happened. A real estate agency represented by a female agent handled Neil's property. And, and when she ultimately had a buyer, she went by Neil's office late one afternoon to tell him closing was going to be within a few days. And he opened a drawer, pulled out a bottle, they had a drink. And she was there for probably the best part of an hour, half an hour or more, I don't know chatting with Neil, having a drink or two, and socializing. And I later interviewed her. She got in touch with me. In the middle of the night that night, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, she got a phone call on her home phone. She said the person sounded like a lawyer, whatever that meant, but it was threatening. And it, it was a call that basically told her if, if they ever saw her with Neil again, she's gonna, she was going to regret it. Not a good idea to ever be seen with this. She took it seriously. And so when the closing happened a few days later, the firm said another realist, a guy, handled the closing. The point being, Neil was obviously under surveillance. And that meant when Sanford met with him, he probably was also. Because yes. he met with Neil at Neil's place. And Sanford met with Neil late in the evening, or after, after dinner, certainly, according to himself. 
And the later in the day you met with Neil, the more you have to learn. Because the drunker Neil got, the more careless he became. And so if Sanford met with Neil, the people surveilling him may have witnessed the meeting, identified Sanford from his place, if nothing else, learned he was an editor at the Republic, uh, and confronted Neil. And Neil might, not, Neil might have even said, maybe I said too much. I mean, yeah. who knows what Neil told him. But Sanford came home that night and told his daughter he had just learned something to get them all killed and, and made arrangements to tell Rosalie what he had found out and then killed himself. A uh, very strange set of circumstances. Yes. But the fact that Neil was being watched. And, yes. and uh, I, I made one effort someplace along the way. Uh, uh, there was a guy named Bill Helmer who was uh, a friend of Lake Headley's. Is Bill was on the on the staff of Playboy magazine, editor of some sort. And when Lake got in trouble for not having a PI license, he was being investigated. The same guy that complained to the to uh, about Lake not being licensed was the Israeli colonel, the intelligence guy who hid Karakobi out in the really? kibbutz. Uh, Will Northrup was running a Israeli military intelligence station in Phoenix at that time. Big big deal for them. A couple fronts and a friend of the Kobe's and hid Kara out. But because Lake was pointing a finger uh, at Kobe and, because he was also using the Jodan stuff that I was talking yeah. about. That, and, and Will Northrup liked Monty Kobe, a Jewish friend of his. He was the one that filed the complaint against Lake. They got Lake investigated for practicing without a license as an investigator for the Dunlap Defense Committee. So the way that Lake got around that problem, he got Bill Helmer at Playboy magazine to make him an investigative reporter for Playboy. And Lake then insisted he was no longer an investigative journal, uh, PI, he was now a, a reporter. And so I went to Helmer and, and I, Neil had supposedly written this book called Other Lives, Other Lies. Yes. That was the manuscript. So I got myself commissioned by Playboy magazine to interview Neil about the book. And I called Neil up and said, you know, besides working for The Progress, I'm also working for Playboy magazine. Yeah. And, and Playboy understands that you've written a book about the Bulls case. And we'd love to talk to you about it. And, and he agreed to meet with me. And then he called me back about a half an hour later and said he'd run it by his lawyer. And his lawyer said, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't going to meet with me after all. <laughs> but that was as close as I came to getting Neil to ever talk to me. And, really? and uh, you know, he was, I, I, I don't even know why he, he did that. Neil did have a lengthy phone conversation with Molly Ivins. Yes. And I, that's something else. And Molly, Molly, at my request, before she died, did a video deposition of that yes. meeting, which is available. And um, uh, that was at my urging. And uh, Molly was already into some cancer problems at that point. But uh, I asked her to put it on record because she had had this long meeting with Neil and Molly could drink anybody under the table. That's what I've been told. <laughs> Molly was Molly was amazing. She drank beer. Never even went to the bathroom. I mean, she could drink <laughs> a case of beer without peeing. I don't know how she did it. Um, one of the highlights of my life was she and I became very good friends. She ate at my house when she was in town and knew my family. And uh, one night when we were out working very late together, we often did work together when she was here. And we'd be out hitting the bars looking for people and stuff. We got She was staying at a it might have been the Adam, but one of the downtown hotels. And I, I escorted her back to the hotel. And, and there was a pool on like the fifth floor or something, or whatever hotel this was. Yeah. It was like three o'clock in the morning. It was like one of those nights when it was still over 100 degrees at two yeah. o'clock in the morning. And we skinny dipped in the pool together. <laughs> and one of the highlights of my life is skinny dipping with Molly Ivins in <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times. I, I always remember that one. I just watched a documentary about her not too long ago, and she was something else. Oh, she was marvelous. She was something I, I, I really, I really enjoyed Molly. Yeah. She, but, Molly, uh, but, but Neil thought he could, you know, Neil was drinking with Molly at lunch at, at Trulix. It used to be a restaurant over on, 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 on I-17 North, near Indian School and I-17 uh -huh. on the far side place called Trulix, not there anymore. And she had lunch with Neil there. And she was a fairly attractive woman and personable and yeah. Southern accent and funny. And so Neil was all for it. And they were, and, and he's trying to impress her with yeah. all, all that he knew and he's drinking and she's drinking. And, and Neil's getting you know tipsier and tipsier and she's not. You yeah. know? And she's doing just fine, thank you. And, and Neil begins inventing all these these theories of the Bulls case. So in case the Dunlap thing failed, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. He had like 14 versions of this thing. You can offer them one up ever another, you know. Uh, and uh, she was thoroughly convinced by the time they were through that 
he was the case. Yeah. <laughs> he was the guy that put together the the Bowles conspiracy. And she you know, had good reasons in the conversation for coming to that conclusion and had done a tape when she got back to her car immediately in the parking lot, which she had provided to the AG's office, and then later did this video deposition for me. And, and uh, I trust Molly's judgment. Molly was one of the reporters when she was still with the New York Times and based in Denver, who quickly distrusted the official theory of the case. Really? Lake Headley, for all of his bluster, uh, was a fun guy to hang around with. And yeah. I first met Lake after I went to work for The Progress in 79. And that spring, he was already over here beginning to work for the Dunlap Defense Committee. And one of the things he had done, as he had begun to go through, as I was doing, I had the discovery that had been hidden for a mm -hmm. long time and not released by the judge. It was probably, may or may not be exculpatory that Murray Miller had access to. And Lake had found in going through that some stuff that I hadn't even found yet. He had found that Neil Roberts reported three stolen vehicles from his parking lot. Yes on the day Bowles was killed, which struck Lake as a little odd. <laughs> yes, and they were discovered at the airport, if I'm not mistaken. One of them was, one yeah. of them was, yeah. Uh, that was the one that Varevi took to the airport to leave town in. Yes. So Lake held a press conference in Phoenix about this curiosity about the three vehicles stolen from Neil Roberts' law office of that day. Isn't that strange, you know? <clears throat> and he was getting roundly pissed on by all the other reporters in the room for having the audacity to defend Max Dunlap, who had just killed their colleague. What kind of an animal are you? You could even, you know, work for this guy. And, and I'm fairly new to the whole world at that time as a journalist for The Progress. I'm in the back of the room and I, and I say, hey, wait a minute, guys. Let's hear the man out. Let's not, uh, let's, let's judge him on, on the content. You yeah. know, let's, let's hear what he has to say, for Christ's sake. And, and, uh, I didn't get roundly applauded for defending Lake either. But unbeknownst to me, the woman standing next to me was Molly Ivins. And that's really? how we met. And she applauded the fact that I was standing up for a, right, a guy's right to say his piece at a press conference. And we became... And that's how you became friends. And we became friends that evening. And she began, when she came to town, would often work with me. We'd go out and I would help her find people to talk to and stuff. And so we spent a lot of time, and she would eat at my house, and... and uh, did she do a lot of work on the Bulls case? Uh, she did a fair amount for the did time. She? Yeah, a fair amount being... Uh, she was here maybe a half a dozen times yeah. out of Denver over the course of uh, some years. I, I had this awful feeling, this is not, this is not, this is one of many investigations uh -huh. I've worked on in my life, but a lot of it's still in my head. I'm trying to find a way to tell as many stories as I can. Yeah. Uh, while I can do so, because a, a lot of these are things that are just in my head, and there's still this. I have a good, a good recall. I remember stuff, and and I and I have a lot to say, and I would yeah. like to say it.